The first 15 people are recovering after being wounded in a mass shooting last weekend in North Lawndale. More than 100 people were gathered for a Halloween party Saturday into Sunday when a man opened fire into the crowd. Chicago Tribune reporter Jake Sheridan has been covering the aftermath, and he joins us now with an update. Hey, Jake. Hey, thanks for having me. Also with us is Edwin Galetti, Vice President of Violence Intervention and Prevention Services Program at UCAN. The group works with young people in North Lawndale, and it's connecting survivors of the shooting to wraparound services. Welcome, Edwin. Thank you for having me. Jake, can you tell us more about the Halloween party and the shooting that occurred there? Yeah, so, um, you know, police responded uh, Saturday night, early Sunday morning, uh, to reports of a shooting um, that that happened uh, on Pulaski. And, um, you know, we we know that uh, a party was underway. The venue where the shooting happened uh, is known to have uh, unlicensed parties. Um, And um, we understand that a man was inside and uh, had been, you know, pre-intoxicated and was tossed out. And uh, a couple minutes later, he came back with a gun as folks were starting to leave and opened fire inside uh, pretty indiscriminately. Uh, and, he, and he wounded 15 people. Um, so uh, police have since uh, and prosecutors have since charged William Groves, uh, who's a Chicago resident, with the shooting. Uh, he's facing uh, 33 different counts, uh, including attempted murder. And um, he is being held at, at Cook County Jail. What else do we know about Groves at this point? We know that uh, he he was convicted of uh, several felonies in the past. And, uh, you know, Larry Snelling, police superintendent Larry Snelling, was clear to say that he he shouldn't have had a gun. Um, So uh, one thing that investigators are going to try to find out is how he got that weapon. Edwin, what are you hearing from people about what happened and how are survivors doing? So we're hearing the same um, story, and and the incident that was being reported is the same that's being reported in the news. Um, Many of our survivors are still um, dealing with the trauma that they faced and and ultimately were not prepared for. Um, It's giving them um, the sense of an anxiety and, um, in many ways, um, feeling victimized and not understanding why they were not on, not able to go out and enjoy the holiday weekend in their community and, and go home to their families as they left. You're working with the survivors of the shooting and uh, also providing services for people who witnessed the event, but they weren't wounded. That in itself we know can be very dr- traumatic, right, Edwin? That is correct. So we don't only work with the um, victims of a critical incident. We work with the community and the families as well. Um, we understand that this takes a toll on the community as a whole, and our aim is to um, serve as connectors to resources and services and as a support to both the individuals and families to promote long-term support and st- stabilization. UCAN's Connecting Survivors to Wraparound Services that are going to help them heal not just physically, but emotionally. So just talk about how that referral process works and then some of the programs that you're connecting folks to. So when we get um, word of a critical incident, um, you can and my team that consists of both street outreach and victim advocacy, we jump into action. Um, We immediately respond to the crime scene to try to make any connections that we can make with the families of the victims or any friends, um, as well as whatever local hospitals that they were transported to. 
Um, currently, we've working with eight of the victims, uh, two of the most critical, to provide um, the basic needs and long-term um, assistance that they need to ensure that their recovery is one that is um, successful. As you talk there about some of the direct aid that you're providing, I understand that two of the people shot uh, were actually about to start new jobs and that yes. you can actually, you connected the employers um you know, on their behalf, and you explained the situation to try and see if they could keep those jobs. Yes, yeah, so two of the victims um, had just started um, new employment maybe a couple weeks ago, so um, was able to discuss with them and work with them around the FMLA process and work with the employers to ensure that um, individuals' um, employment is not impacted. Um, while these individuals are down, we are going to offer some uh, monetary services to help um, meet the rent and basic food um, needs that they may have and any utility services that they may need some assistance with as well. And so we're clear you're helping financially as well? Yes, ma'am. Folks? Yes, ma'am. Now, Jake, you reported on another mass shooting on Halloween last year. That one was in Garfield Park. And you talked about how victims are doing one year later. So remind us of that incident and tell us what happened there. Yeah, so last Halloween, October 31st, um, there was a, a group of people gathered in, in East Garfield Park for a vigil uh, for uh, a family friend of theirs who had died of uh, after surgery complications. And, uh, you know, as, as folks were starting to leave there, um, someone opened fire and, and shot 14 people. Uh, one, one person was killed. And, um, you know, the, the shooter hasn't been found. Um, the family had... Uh, no idea. Nine of the people who were shot were from one family, the Patterson family. And, you know, I, I spoke with a couple of uh, their family members, um, three women. I spoke with Sharice, Contina, and Vicki Patterson. Mm-hmm. How are and, they doing? Um, they're, they're generally not doing well. Um, you know, I think they've worked really hard to recover. Um, and, and, you know, they've, as, as one of them put it, picked up the pieces and then kept it moving. But, um, you know, they've, they've struggled. Uh, physically and emotionally and financially in, in pretty significant ways since the shooting. Tell us a bit more of their story. Yeah. So, um, you know, Cantina, for instance, uh, she works as a beautician doing, she does hair and, um, you know, it's a lot harder for her to stand. She, she was shot in the leg and, um, you know, she still has tons of pain in her leg. So she can't, do 15 clients a day like she used to. Um, mm. Her sister, Cantina, continues to struggle with pain, too. And like all of these three women, Cantina uh, had to dip into her savings a good bit. Um, she's struggling financially. And, and their cousin, Vicky, um, she she struggles to go outside of the house. I actually was just talking with Vicky this morning, and, um, you know, she told me she didn't go into work on, on Halloween Um they, they saw news of the shooting in North Lawndale, and they were shocked by it. You know, they were a little heartened to see that uh, the suspect was caught. I think that's the, the uncertainty of the person who shot you, you know, apparently randomly yeah. uh, being out there is something that really bothers them. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah I, I, you know, yeah. That's difficult. Do you remember back directly after the incident a year ago? I mean, what did they share back then with you about the kind of support they were expecting? Yeah, you know, I think generally they expected to be taken care of um, for for the needs they had to be met. You know, I I think it would have been hard for them to predict what those needs were at the time. 
you know, they, they have they, a lot of them have had surgery. Um, there have been unexpected financial costs. You know, each of them was out of work for months. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I think they just had a sense that whatever problems arose, someone would be there to help them address them. And to some extent, there's been some support. You know, the, Vicky in particular has gotten uh, regular therapy through a nonprofit, but, um, you know, each of them was super clear that they don't feel like government has supported them. Um, they haven't heard, they haven't gotten money back from the state victims compensation fund yet. They told me, um, and, and, you know, generally, uh, they, they just haven't gotten what they needed at the time. Um, when I spoke with them a couple weeks after the, the shooting last year, the GoFundMe they had, uh, had raised just over $300. And, mm. um, and the goal you know, was a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand. Yeah. The goal was a hundred thousand. And, you know, they set that goal at the time because they saw that folks, uh, who had suffered other mass shootings, you know, particularly in Highland park, were getting millions of dollars and, um, you know, they, they, they should be supported as well. And, you know, eventually that GoFundMe did get up to $11,000. Um, but, uh, you know, they say that, that hasn't really been enough when it's split, you know, 14 ways. Uh, it's, it's not really enough to make up for lost wages for covering out of pocket medical costs and for uh, other expenses yeah. uh, like therapy. And, and, you know, I, I think they, they were so clear to me that they think that, you know, for instance, the folks in Highland park should be supported and it's great that they were supported, but they think that they deserve that support too. Edwin, does all of this sound familiar to you? Yes. Um, Unfortunately, I think I was two weeks on the job when this incident had, had occurred. Um, I also had two of my staff that were out there um, participating in the event. And um, as we, this did fall outside of our coverage area, but we did provide support to the families as well. Mm-hmm. As one of our victims was a participant in our Ready Chicago program. Um, I think that was probably one of the most difficult times for the community and our agency as we worked with this young man for um, close to 12 months and realizing he had the courage to change and he was doing all the right things and just celebrating with his loved ones and ultimately fell victim to gun violence um, Mm -hmm. despite his change. Um, Well, how, how frequently do you hear of this lack of financial support for survivors of gun violence? I mean, I think it resonates through CVI work. I think um, over the past 12 months or, or 18 months or so, we've gotten a lot more attention. Um, there has been some funding that has been um, poured into the communities, but it, I would, I would, I would go out and say that um, as an individual entity, um, we still need additional resources and whatnot to continue to provide families long term. Um, a lot of the times with the families um, outside of those that work with our case management services and outreach um, and victim advocacy, our time with them is acute. Um, we, we provide assistance with um, the state compensation fund and other basic needs and whatnot. So um, the tall task of going out and partnering with other CVI um, community-based organizations has helped us fill some of them gaps, mm-hmm. but I think there's still a call to action to the um, state and local entities to continue to fund us and um, adequately fund us so we can provide long-term care. And Jake, you alluded to this earlier, but I think it's worth mentioning again, right? This came up when you talked to the Patterson family that what's still on their mind is that they don't know who their shooter is. And so that's, I'm sure, adding to their sense of of just not feeling safe. Yeah, you know, I I think one thing 
one of the Patterson women said to me was, uh, you know, these, these shooter might even know who they are, but they have no idea who this is. It could be anyone. It could be someone in their, in their community. And it, it you know, it, it changes the way they relate to the space they live in. Uh, you know, Vicky, for instance, she doesn't go to the bus stop across the street where the shooting took place anymore because mm. um, she, she just can't do it. It's too painful for her. And, and it's, it's, it's scary. And she feels like when she does get on the bus that she needs to scan the different people who are getting on. So, um, you know, not having that certainty, not having anyone brought to justice, um, I think it really makes it hard to just exist. But Edwin, this mass shooting is a little different because someone has been charged. How does that change the situation in your eyes? I think the situations are um, a little more similar than, than, than we're looking at it. Um, both events seem to be spontaneous. Um, there was not no um, intended target, and it was just recklessness on, on behalf of um, the shooters. Um, but I do believe that um, because there's an individual that has been held accountable, it does help these uh, recent 15 victims um, move towards closure and have an opportunity to co- confront the perpetrator and understand why they did what they did, which will relieve some of the anxiety and, and feelings of being re-victimized every time they step out their front door. We've been talking with Jake Sheridan of the Chicago Tribune and Edwin Galetti, who's vice president of Violence Intervention and Prevention Services Program at UCAN. Thank you both so much. And we're back with more Reset. I'm your host, Sasha Ann Simons. We've been talking about the mass shooting last weekend that wounded 15 people in North Lawndale. It brings up questions about what survivors need in the short and long term. Here to discuss is Les Jenkins, Victim Services Program Manager at the Institute for Nonviolence Chicago. Welcome back to Reset, Les. Thank you. Thank you. Also here, Dr. Tanya Zacherson, a professor of surgery and director of critical trauma research at UChicago Medicine. Nice to have you back, doctor. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you. I'll start with you, Les. I want to talk first about what the response process uh, looks like from the Institute for, for Nonviolence Chicago. So when a shooting happens, right, you get notified about it by the police or even by community members um, who already know you. What happens next? Like, what else do you do in the, in the short term? Well, in the short term, uh, thank you. That's a great question. But uh, in the short term for us, what we do is we, first of all, we have 24 hours on staff, uh, victim advocates. We normally relate to what's called a victim service tree, and we update the incident that's going on. And the advocate that's on call at that time, we notify them. At that time, they respond to either the scene, if it's a DOA, to, show, to offer emotional support and or either they respond to the local hospital. Hmm. Doctor, from a surgeon's perspective, what's the most important thing in the first few hours after being shot? So uh, a gunshot wound is a disease of time, as you know. So immediately, obviously, we have to take care of hemorrhage control or bleeding. So after we've operated on our patients and the patient is going to survive, we're clearly there where we have to support the patient's immediate physical needs, of course. But often a patient does not live in isolation. They're surrounded by family members, friends, and a firearm injury doesn't affect one person. It affects an entire family, an entire community of people. So we have to be present for those family members as well. And I'm not just talking about patients who are 16 or 17 years old. 
you know, this affects all, all people. So we have to be there for those family members as well that are going through the worst moment of their collective lives, even though they may not be the one who is physically injured. They're just as injured psychologically. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We know 15 people were shot last weekend, Les, and and there were more than 100 people at that Halloween event. How would you describe the differences in healing for the people who were physically impacted and then the witnesses? Well, as the doctor was just saying, physically, uh, to describe that, uh, I don't want to miss, but to describe that in response in real time to what we've been able to um, look at how that shows up with just a regular incident itself is, I don't want to underrate that because it's different. But in a situation like that, I believe like time is the best way to respond to that. Like time, Mm. someone being impacted by a gun violence situation, it takes time because it's in stages physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically. So time. Yeah. It comes back to you. Yes. Right? The it's incident? It's like acute. Yeah, as if it just happened yes. each and every time that you, that you think about it. Right, doctor? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I want to add on to what Les was saying because it's not only just the uh, psychological trauma that we're seeing in our patients and their family members, but could you imagine you have a patient who's trying to heal physically you're trying to heal psychologically. Your family members are there. They're going, they're at risk of the same post-traumatic stress disorder and acute stress response as a patient. Then on top of that, you're worried about, hey, how am I going to pay for rent? How am I going to make sure I don't get fired from my job? Because I'm here at the bedside of my son or my daughter who's 14 or 15 years old that I have to be there for to take care of them. Yeah. But I'm being, I'm getting in trouble because I'm not showing up for work. So We've been thinking and addressing some of these structural issues, some of these non-physical issues, the financial stressors that compound that psychological and the physical stressor. You can't heal physically and psychologically from firearm injury if you have these financial, economic, and these social and and structural stressors that you're faced with. So many other things happening at the same time. Exactly. Talk to us about the, uh, the violence recovery program. Uh, and and how you all connect survivors to community resources. Absolutely. So, you know, I want to give a a very strong shout out to Dr. Franklin Cozy-Gay, who is the the head of the Violence Recovery Program at the University of Chicago. And they've been doing phenomenal work about having this longitudinal connection with our trauma patients and saying, hey, let's connect you to our community organizations. Uh, Let's make sure we can uh, connect you with employment and multiple things, but also let's just check in in with you psychologically. And what's exciting is we've been able to blend our violence recovery program with public benefits attorneys and lawyers from Legal Aid Chicago to form a medical legal partnership at the University of Chicago for our trauma patients. So we have lawyers, what are, you know, I refer to as civil rights lawyers going to the bedside of yeah. patients who have been shot to say we're going to protect your needs. We're going to make sure you're not evicted. We're going to expunge your criminal records. We're going to do all the things that you're deserving of, of receiving. We're going to make sure your employment's secure. Let's get those SNAP benefits. Anything you need, we're here to wow. help you, especially crime victim compensation. Your thoughts, Les, on, on uh, why it's important for there to be a connection between the hospitals and these types of community-led efforts? 
to support survivors? Well, I echo what uh, Doc was just saying. I echo it totally because a lot of times um, in an incident like that, uh, I've I've experienced assisting uh, individuals as well as their families uh, 15 to 20 minutes after the incident took place in their life. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them had to be uh, fortunately re-traumatized by the reality that first they physically have to return back to the community. That's not to neglect, to negate that some of them that has to return back has that real reality in real time. Like, how am I going to continue to pay my rent? How am I going to continue to go to work, get my children in school? So all of that is impacted at the same time that they're trying to physically heal. So, you know, just being present with them and offering them emotional support and trying to assist them with the resources that we may have as an institute because we believe in networking is a strong piece to that. Uh, because we believe in building out a beloved community, and that's where we have all parties involved. So I, I totally echo what Doc is saying. Yeah. So, so it's about the short-term support, and your your group is providing long-term help. That's the too. Con- that's the continue. you've got to sort of stick around. Yes. And that and that goes back to what you said earlier. Is is no time limit with that coming from our mm-hmm. approach, and with me being a victim of gun violence myself. Like, I mean, here it is 20 years later, and I was listening earlier, and it's so true. Um, Being injured from my waist down and not being able to walk for over nine months, Mm. I still have facts almost 20 years later where uh, the physical part of and the psychological part tends to play tricks on my mind. But I push through it. I've learned over the years to manage the effects of what I've experienced. Yeah. Doctor, And even to point out less, just uh, like how incredible the work you're doing is, because I can only imagine every day you're dealing with people who have had uh, uh, similar injuries and firearm violence. You're supporting so many people that have had similar horrible stories, right? And that we know, you know, in healthcare, that can re-traumatize you. And, but you found this incredible meaning in the work that you're doing. And I just want to applaud you because... That is so important for us yeah. as trauma surgeons. You know, we, we don't applaud the work that you guys do enough, uh, knowing that there's memories of your own trauma that probably come to the surface, maybe even on a daily basis. I wouldn't be surprised. I can say I can see how difficult it is for you to even talk about it right now, Les. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, it is. Is that accurate? Yes, it's touching. It's touching. It's emotional. But I think about the long ago, one of our principals talked about uh, the sake of suffering for the just call. And, and, and the goal for us is to reduce gun violence. You know, our principles is surrender, surrounded around Dr. King, uh, the Kenyan of nonviolence, Dr. King. And so we believe in these principles and it's a way of life. And a lot of us uh, allow it to show up in our character as we show service and what service look like in our communities. Doctor, let's talk more about the the, the short and the long-term care um, and how that sort of comes together on the hospital side. And I'm also curious what exists for people who might not have insurance. (laughs) Right. Um, So those are excellent questions. Yes. Um, And you're also speaking to a dual Canadian-American who trained in the Canadian healthcare system where healthcare is a human right. you're speaking to a Canadian as well. Oh, we'll have to connect about that offline. Um, But, you know, and what's interesting is the vast majority of Americans support universal health care. The insurance part of health care, the barriers to health care are rooted in white supremacy. 
in this country and structural racism. So that's just one metric of, of how to prevent uh, people of color from accessing the, hum- the human rights, uh, you know, that they have and they need and these resources. But so in the short term, of course, we have the, the medical and the surgical uh, needs that we attend to. Sometimes they can be prolonged, especially if we're dealing like less. You were talking about spinal cord injuries. There's a rehabilitation you know, aspect to that, getting people the care that they need in that in that situation. Uh, again, it's been interesting because uh, I have to stress just what we've learned with our recovery legal care, medical legal partnership, having the support of public benefits attorneys, and again, shout out to Legal Aid Chicago for their help, has been something remarkable because, again, by virtue of being a human being, you deserve uh, a, a whole myriad of human rights, whether that's occurring in the United States or not. There are like constant, yeah. there's like UN conventions of the rights of the child of women against discrimination that we really have to adhere to. So when you, I think, take people sort of in the, the short term, you're dealing with their clinical issues. You're, are the wounds healed? Are all the drains out? Are you eating well? Have you gained back the weight you probably lost while you were being hospitalized? And then the medium and the longer terms are, are you rehabilitating okay? Are you back at work? How does that look? But again, it is, I cannot understate how much fire and violence is a risk factor for extreme poverty. It's a risk factor for losing your employment, losing the ability to, to have that roof over your head, losing access to the resources you need to to not just survive, but to thrive and to ensure that you can have your children, your family structure thriving. You know, I was speaking about this earlier with my colleague, Dr. Henry, who's uh, at the Comer side and she's the trauma medical director because we're all at a firearm conference right now for prevention, mentioning that even if if a young person is shot, that affects their entire classroom uh, and and PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, become, stress disorder becomes a problem everywhere. So. Yeah. But the long-term uh, issues for care have to be con- connecting with our community partners and dealing with those medical, legal issues that can cause harm. Yeah, that's a great, great set of points there. And, and Les, I know that you have talked a lot about the fact that we can't make assumptions about what people need, you know, when it comes to their recovery, right? Why is that important, you think, to make sure that we don't do that. Give examples of what it might look like and, and how people might interpret your actions that way. So <clears throat> one, thing I, one, one thing I learned in responding to incidents uh, that take place in our community is it looks different in a black community. What we look at as trauma or traumatic, I'm, coming from the conditions we come from, it's almost like normal to us. Like you can, which that in itself is such a problem. That's such a problem, and so I'm grateful for the CP4P Community Power for Peace. That's where it's over 27 different orgs from the one umbrella, and all of us have some commonality together, and we we're networking so tight to continue to raise the awareness about how to heal through this process because all of them are predominantly black and brown communities that we serve. Mm-hmm. And it's not normal, although we have the conditions forced it mm-hmm. to appear to be normal. Whereas, again, as I was just saying, responding to the hospital where um, you approach a family, and for me to assume by using just a word as 
I understand how you feel can cause a great like like explosion because, because the response I, can be no you don't understand because I don't understand right, right. I want to empathize in that mm-hmm. moment I want to be present and sometimes the best way of empathizing and showing some sympathy to the, what they experience is just being present mm-hmm. and allowing them to talk first Listen. right and so it's very important to be educated on how to respond to these uh, critical incidents that we relentlessly respond 24 after hour after hour after hour but what about what about the ones that's responding making sure that the healers even have education to continue to mm. heal through this process because i mean like it's it's violence is like a pandemic itself in our communities it's like like a tsunami it's raging Mm-hmm. So we're going to continue to fight relentlessly to bring the awareness to all that cares and continue yeah. to network with and stay connected so that we can stay updated from the doctor's point, from the clergy's point, from even the logistics of the law enforcement and as well as community leaders. And, you know, even I, I love those points that you just made last. I think they're so powerful and important and especially mm, this idea of, normalization of the abnormal so i was on call last weekend a couple of times and so yes of course the violence was was uh very high and but sadly not not unlike standard calls we have at the university of chicago on the south side but how do we get to this normalization of the abnormal where seeing so much violence preventable death and preventable injury in black and brown communities here is not discussed in the mainstream. I mean, this show is an exception. It's not discussed in the mainstream. It's not, like, prioritized by our our federal governments. You know, the state of Illinois is a bit different. Our attorney general has been doing a lot of great work with crime victim compensation, for example, and democratizing access. But this is, like, a domestic and also a global parallel where we see the lives of communities of colors, of members of communities of colors, and these lives are not worth as much as, say, me, a blonde white woman, as much as my life, that has to change and we have to call it for what it is and call it for why we're seeing the fire and violence in the first place, why we have such an incredible racial wealth gap in the city of Chicago where white communities versus black communities, there's a difference of $4 billion. Why are public schools in on the south side of Chicago supported by a property tax, which will be far lower than in rich neighborhoods? You know, uh, so... It, Lots of stuff yeah. to discuss, so, Sasha. So why don't you leave us with this uh, in the interest of time, Doctor? Any other violence prevention efforts or, or gun violence survivor resources that you want our listeners to know about before you both go? Anything come to mind for you, Les? Continue to educate all that's involved with uh, healing, the, healing those that's fortunately to come in, come in contact with such tragedy as gun violence, right? Educate, continue to share the information abroad, um, continue to be on the front lines. I'm one of those ones, and it'd be remiss of me not to say that, I'm one of those ones, not just because I'm a victim of gun violence myself, but it's hard to rest sometime knowing that at any given moment, someone's life is just been finna be totally violated without permission. Mm. Final words to you, doctor. 
And to, to add to that, Les, if I may also, I would like to um, just speak to Brandon Johnson, who's been amazing in this in this environment and field to say, we need expanded emergency funding for survivors of fire and violence and their families immediately. Crime victim compensation is taking too long to get. We need something now for survivors so that it isn't a risk factor for future poverty. We'll leave it there for now. We've been talking with Dr. Tanya Zacherson, who's professor of surgery and director of critical trauma research at UChicago Medicine, and Les Jenkins, who's program manager of victim services at the Institute for Nonviolence Chicago. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you.